Have you ever been lied to, deceived? It can get pretty messy, can't it? It can. You know, in our daily lives, we must be so vigilant about everything to do with our money. Scams are everywhere. There's also these very crafty people who seem quite credible at times, but there's great danger in deception. You know, in business, I used to work with a funeral director um, who, this funeral director uh, was in partnership with her business partner and she trusted this person, but this person lied on paperwork and lied to her about business structures. She was probably a little bit naive and this other funeral director stole the entire business out from underneath her. There is great danger in deception. What about in relationships? Be it family, spouses, friends or colleagues, when someone close to us lies and deceives us, it can really hurt and hurt very deeply. Family risks and feuds can last generations and are so often caused by lies or by covering up the truth. Just look at the whole mess of Harry and Meghan and the royal family. I mean, there's great danger in deception. Yes, even in churches, we too must be vigilant so that we don't get deceived and believe the lies of what the Bible calls false teachers. Chapter 2 of Second Peter is all about false teachers and the dangers of deception that comes with false teachers. And so we are going to today look at the four C's of false teachers. Good preacher always uses alliteration, don't they? The four C's of false teaching, we're going to look at the characteristics, the consequences, the conduct and the condemnation and then discover how we can protect our heart in a deceitful world. So let's open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2 and we're going to start at the start of chapter 2 which reads, false prophets also rose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So let's look at those characteristics of false teachers. The first one is that they are from you or from among you. And this might be a bit confronting, but Peter identifies that false teachers and false prophets come from within. Now, I know human nature. We're all thinking about everyone else, wondering who might be a false teacher if false teachers come among, from among us, then who's a false teacher here? <laughs> I don't believe it's me. Uh, and it's not so much that they might necessarily come from within a congregation, although that is possible if truth and the gospel is not preached and valued in a congregation, but more so that, that these people come from within the broader body of Christ, or at least claim to be from within that. Let me share a story with you. A church in Australia last year 
had a bloke begin attending their church who quickly shared about their own credentials within that denomination, the work that he'd done in parts and in other places within the denomination, (coughs) and he'd been sent out to work with churches to bring them to a more healthy place and closer to God. He sounded credible initially, he knew the right words to use, and he quickly got some of the elders of that church on side who resonated with his style and charisma. There were, however, some very switched-on leaders in the church, particularly the pastoral team, who saw right through the man and saw him for who he was. He was a wolf in sheep's clothing, he was a charlatan, and he had lied about so much. But even when the elders were cautioned and told about the lies the person had told, that there was no sending out, that this person was a false teacher, a false prophet, and was deceiving them, they didn't believe it. The pastoral team then had to call in the state denominational leaders to spell it out to the elders and make it abundantly clear to them what was going on and that in fact they needed to remove the person from fellowship so they wouldn't lead the church astray and follow a false teacher, a false prophet who was really just a con man. The dangers are real. That occurred in a church in Australia in the last 12 months. But that person professed to be a Christian, had a history and a background in churches and was just credible enough knowing a few of the right people's names and a few of the right things to say and knowing enough about the denominational structure so as to come across as credible. And that's the danger. False teachers come from within. Within a denomination or within a church or within a network of churches, false teachers come from within. And if you think about it, none of us would place any stock or value or be easily led astray if someone who was not from a church background came in here and tried to do those sorts of things, would we? We would immediately know that that is not the truth because they don't have the history, they don't have the background, they don't have the connections, they don't have runs on the board, so to speak. So that's why we don't need to be vigilant about false teachers coming from outside of the church because we would immediately see through them. That's why we need to be vigilant about them, though, from coming from within. And, you know, we have a process in place to assist our discernment, particularly when it comes to appointing leaders to protect from false teaching. One of those is how we appoint leaders. It's not a quick process. You know, churches have a great reputation for never doing anything quickly, like everything always takes a long time. Well, in this instance, I'm sure you're glad that we don't disappoint people who are brand new, straight into leadership positions, straight away. Because we have this discernment process. So first of all, you have to be a member, which means you're a baptised believer who agrees with the vision and values of the church to bring glory to God and hope to the northeast by making disciples through authentic worship, vibrant family, gospel-centred growth and joyful service. Second, you've had time to walk with us as leaders to see if you would be a good fit with the team. And then if God leads together, 
Deacons are put forward to a vote for congregational discernment and elders are appointed and ratified at the AGM. And right now we are seeking God to raise up new elders and deacons to join the work that God is doing in and through this church. We are praying for two new elders and four new deacons to join our leadership team and to help guide and shape our ministries for the years ahead. You know, currently all of our elders and deacons have passed the age of retirement. Not past their usefulness, let me be very clear, but they're all retired, which is fantastic for availability. It really is. It's great because their, their availability is wonderful. <clears throat> but the experience of those years will never be, <clears throat> I think, fully realised in any church when you have faithful people from the older generations faithfully serving the Lord and following His leadership and guidance. And so I really appreciate the elders and deacons that we have in this church. I appreciate the wisdom and experience of their years. But I do also believe that it's time for the younger generations to step up and to take on those leadership roles and to add to the vitality of our leadership team. May the Holy Spirit impress upon your heart if he is leading you to this. And he, if he is, then do not ignore him or wait for, for someone to tap you on the shoulder. Make yourself known. We know from our series in Timothy that those sort of leadership aspirations are noble. It is good. So the first characteristic of a false teacher is that they are from among you, from within. They are known. The second is that they act in secret. Private meetings, behind closed doors, with only a select invited few. Secrecy is the currency of deception. Small groups, if we're not careful, can become an incubator for false teachers to run amok because they are small, high-trust environments with a select few individuals where a charismatic figure can easily sway the group and lead them in error if we're not careful. So if you ever find yourself in a group, not necessarily a small group, but any group of Christians that's not welcoming of new people and open, that is not accountable that operates in secrecy rather than transparency, then watch out because that's how cults start and they thrive in secrecy. So that's characteristic two, they act in secret. Third, they bring destruction. Their destruction comes through heresy, things that are not truth. Recent or prevalent examples, let me, let me share a few of these. The prosperity gospel. God rewards your faithfulness with material wealth. Works-based salvation. You have to earn God's favour. We know these are wrong. The poverty gospel. Give all you have to the poor and then you'll be truly blessed. Jesus was a good guy. He wasn't really God, but just a good guy, a good teacher. More heresies. Don't take the Bible too literally. Have you ever heard people say that? People who don't hold the Bible as their ultimate authority are heretics. God will be good with everyone in the end. God will save everyone so no one really goes to hell. Then why did Jesus have to die? These are all heresies that I'm sure you've heard. 
good people go to heaven. You know, sitting through over two and a half thousand funerals in a cemetery in Melbourne, you know how many times I heard people <coughs> wrestling with what happens after death, trying to express and trying to say that their loved one will go to heaven when they knew deep down the reality. There was no faith there at all. But some people believe that all people will go to heaven. And if you hear anything like that coming out of a Christian's mouth, it's your job to lovingly correct them and highlight the heresy. Lovingly, I did say. I said lovingly. Did you hear that one? Lovingly correct them. Fourth characteristic is they deny the master. Anyone who denies Jesus as their master is someone to avoid in our church circles. You know, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, yet their rejection of Jesus would show that they were never saved and so that the payment bought with the blood of Christ was never applied to them. Fifth is they bring swift destruction, mostly upon themselves. They might get away with deceiving some people, but there's no hiding from God. They'll be judged for their actions. The act of leading others astray is what swiftly brings God's judgment upon them. You know, there's a special burden upon teaching and leading others. And when that is misused, God's condemnation is swift. Sixth characteristic is that they're followed by many. They're enticing. In this particular case that Peter was addressing at this church here, the false teachers were espousing a sexually promiscuous lifestyle as a valid Christian lifestyle. You know, to our fleshly temptations, this would be enticing. The heresy was basically saying this, you can sin as much as you want and live a lifestyle of sin because you've been saved by grace. That's not what Christ taught. That's not what the apostles taught. And that should never be considered valid. It flies in the face of Christian virtues that Peter proclaimed in chapter 1. I once worked with a guy who was a Catholic, lovely guy, and what he said was, I'm going to live my life exactly the way as I want, but on my deathbed, that's when I'll, you know, make the, you know, that's when I'll, you know, get asked for forgiveness, or, or I'll have people, you know, a priest come and, and that'll be enough for me. So I'm just going to live my life as I want, but that'll be my ticket to heaven is when I, it's just before I die. No. And the fact that he can think that with his Catholic faith that that's possible, that's heresy. Greed. You know, false teachers throughout history have been marked by sexual sin, a lust for money and dishonesty. When personal gain is at the expense of others occurs and a lust for money overrides Christian virtues, then we can see that the true colours of the heretic, heretic are in full view and plain sight. But this can also be a cautionary tale for leaders who were once pure of heart yet gave in to temptation. Hillsong and Brian Houston have been in the news recently just in this area and the church you know, has done great things for Christ and Hillsong has helped thousands in practical ways as well but they've also been very unwise with their stewardship of funds given to the church. They've been wasteful in their extravagant lifestyles and it's a real shame because all the focus is now on that aspect of their failure and not on the work of the gospel. 
they exploit. At the root of it all, false teachers exploit them, those around them for their personal pleasure and gain. It's the opposite of the gospel, which is about sacrifice and God's glory, not our own. And they lie. They're agents of deception from the father of lies. So those are the characteristics of false teachers from this passage directly, a great passage of warning and caution to us all. And Peter then goes on to explain the consequences of false teachers. He says in verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if we did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction by making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot with uh, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Peter here explains from examples in Scripture how God brought judgment upon the wicked. And he gives three examples. The first example is the angels that fell from their position in heaven and followed Satan. To simplify it, Satan was basically the worship leader of heaven, right? Yet he wanted glory for himself and so God kicked him and his followers out. He took about a third of the angels with him many of whom became demons and from this passage, others were sent and, and are kept straight in hell um, under guard. Um, and so he, God's punishment of them is also not complete yet either. We read that they will still face the lake of fire, their eternal punishment, their eternal place, their terminal place of punishment. The second example was the judgment God brought upon sinners with the flood. The people were wicked and only Noah was found to be righteous and so Noah was saved along with his family. Only Noah, one man. God didn't spare any sinners then and so what Peter's saying is that there's no basis for supposing he will now or in the future either. You know, whether we are spared from our sin is up to us individually by our faith. The third example is the judgment God brought down on Sodom and Gomorrah he rained fire from heaven upon that city and those sinful people until it and them were destroyed because of their sexual depravity. God first demonstrated that he would judge ungodly sinners with fire when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The ungodly from then on should not expect escape from the same fate. They too will be subject to fiery judgment. So God has delivered swift, uncompromising judgment upon the wicked and sinful in the past. God has revealed his heart to us and his nature and his response to the wicked. He will judge the unrighteous and the wicked and will bring punishment upon them. With that, we can be sure. But these stories also reveal the grace of God at work and that he knows how to rescue the righteous. He rescued Noah and his family because Noah was righteous 
And he rescued Lot from the destruction as well because he was righteous and he did that before he brought judgment. The reminder of Lot shows that God will not only punish the wicked but will at the same time rescue the godly from judgment that he sends on the ungodly. And this example as well as that of Noah assured Peter's faithful readers that God would not lose them in the mass of sinners whom he would judge. See, the consequences of being a false teacher is that you will invite God's judgment and punishment upon yourself. Peter shows us that God knows how to rescue the righteous and the godly, but he also knows how to and has a proven track record of punishing the unrighteous and the wicked. So it's a bit of a two sides of the one coin. We can have great hope and, and gr- in, in the grace of God for us who have been saved, but it's a very terrible thing to, to be looking at for these unfaithful, ungodly sinners who will face judgment. That should lead us to spur us on, shouldn't it? In love and good deeds to reach these people so that we, they are saved from that destiny. The third C is conduct. Second Peter, verse 10. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which, which they're ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as they wage for their wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Peter doesn't pull any punches, does he? He is emotional too. He is going on a tirade here. Let you not be missing this point here. He's passionate about stopping these false teachers. I would hate to be described like what Peter is describing these false teachers. He calls them bold and willful. They've got no humility. They're reckless and arrogant. He says they're blasphemous. They think they're like God. He says they're like irrational animals, desire-dominated and selfish. He says that they're creatures of instinct, that they don't think. They're just controlled by their carnality. Their purpose is to be destroyed as though they were a chicken raised in a Steggles factory farm or something. He says that they're ignorant. He says that they're going to be destroyed and suffer for their wrongdoing. He says they're blots and blemishes. They are tainted and stained like when you spill beetroot on a clean white tablecloth. They have adulterous eyes, like they're all looking to satisfy their lust. They see every woman as a target for their adultery. They lure their prey. You know, these false teachers sinned without restraint. Furthermore, they lured people not firmly committed to Jesus to join them like a fisherman. They're insatiable for sin. They enticed others. Their hearts were trained in greed. Their desire to satisfy themselves rather than God. 
They were cursed children. These, these false teachers had considerable experience lusting and practicing greed, always angling for more wealth, power and illicit pleasures. They were experts in feeding their greed. They behaved like undisciplined and self-centered children and were under God's judgment. They were forsaking the right way. They'd gone astray. And then Peter ends this story with this section with the story of Balaam. Peter likens those evil men of his time to the prophet Balaam. You know, in the popular Jewish mind, Balaam had come to stand as the type of all false prophets. He is the classic example of the false teacher who leads people astray for his own personal gain. If you don't remember Balaam's story, it's one of those ones that's pretty um, hard to, to forget, really. But it's from Numbers chapter 22 to 24. Balak, king of Moab, was alarmed at the steady and apparently irresistible advance of the Israelites. And in an attempt to check it, he sent for Balaam to come and curse the Israelites for him, offering him great rewards. To the end of the day, Balaam refused to curse the Israelites, but his covetous heart longed after the rich rewards which Balak was offering. Balak tried again, and at his renewed request, Balaam played with fire enough to agree to meet him. On the way, his donkey stopped because it saw the angel of the Lord standing in its path and the donkey rebuked Balaam. The donkey spoke. Now, we've all pictured Shrek, haven't we? I would love to see if it was like that. That would be great, wouldn't it? But I don't think so. But how it was easier, this, this does my head in, it was easier for God to make a donkey speak than it was to change Balaam's intentions. Does that say something about how pig-headed Balaam was? And about how difficult it is for someone consumed by greed to go against what their desires are? Ah, that is, Balaam's desire was for greed, not for the Lord. False teachers that Peter referred to were likewise trying to get Christians to participate in idolatry and immoral practices. Forsaking the right way themselves, they urged the faithful to turn away from the narrow path of righteousness back onto the broad way that leads to destruction. And it's true that Balaam did not succumb to Balak's bribes, but if ever a man wanted to accept a bribe, that man was Balaam. In Numbers 25, there follows another story. It tells how the Israelites were seduced into the worship of Baal and entered into lustful alliances with Moabite women. Jewish belief was that Balaam was responsible for leading the children of Israel astray. And when the Israelites entered into possession of the land, Balaam, the son of Beor, they slew with the sword as Numbers 31 verse 8 records. In view of all this, Balaam became increasingly the type of the false prophet. And he had two characteristics which were repeated in the evil men of Peter. First, Balaam was covetous. As the story of Numbers unfolds, we can see his fingers itching to get at the gold of Balak. True, he didn't take it, but the desire was there. The evil men of Peter's day were covetous. They were out for what they could get and ready to exploit their membership of the church for personal gain. And second, Balaam taught Israel to sin. He led the people out of the straight 
and into the crooked. He pursued them, sorry, he persuaded them to forget their promises to God. And the evil men of Peter's day were seducing Christians from the Christian way and causing them to break the pledges of loyalty they had given to Jesus Christ. The men who the man who loves gain and who lures others to evil forever stands condemned. And that's where Peter lands on in the last part of chapter two, the fourth sea condemnation. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the law of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. You know, there's absolutely no doubt in Peter's mind that condemnation from God will be the outcome for false teachers. They claim to have all the answers, yet they are as thirst-quenching as a waterless spring and as helpful to water the earth as a mist carried off by the wind. And worse than that really is that they, know, they, they, they knew the truth. They had knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ and still turned their back on God and on the truth just like a dog eating its vomit, eating what made it throw up in the first place or a pig after being washed going back and wallowing in the mud again. That's what it's like for someone who knows the truth, someone who has heard the gospel to turn their back on the truth, to turn their back on God and instead proclaim lies and error as truth. William Barclay writes, They have seen Christ but are so morally degraded by their own choice that they prefer to wallow in the depths of sin rather than to climb the heights of virtue. It is a dreadful warning that a man can make himself such that in the end the tentacles of sin are inextricably around him and virtue for him has lost its beauty. The one sentence from this passage really grabbed me. Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. This is a solid warning. But I believe it can also be true in a positive sense. Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. If you're overcome by the love of God in Christ Jesus, if you are overcome by the hope of the gospel, if you are overcome by God's forgiveness, if you are overcome by God's acceptance, if you are overcome by God's grace, if you are overcome by God's mercy, if you are overcome by the justification we receive through faith in Jesus Christ, what better things could there possibly be to be enslaved by? Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So where does that leave us today? We all battle the sinful nature within us. The Bible calls that our flesh. We all have the proclivity towards sin. 
But the battle, the battle that really needs to be waged is the battle of our heart. And so we must first and foremost protect our heart. You know, it's easy to spot a fake the better you know the genuine article. And so the more we know the scriptures, the more we know God through his revealed word, the more intimate we are with the genuine and the easier it will be to spot the fake. And spotting what is fake or false is what is going to protect our hearts from being led astray. It's an extension of keeping the main thing the main thing. It's keeping our hearts focused on the central attributes and expressions of God's character, the love of God in Christ Jesus, the hope of the gospel, God's forgiveness, God's acceptance, God's grace, God's mercy, the justification we receive through faith in Jesus Christ so that we know the genuine and protect our hearts. It's easy to spot a fake, the better you know the genuine article. This passage gives clear warning of judgment to us. It's more of a stick approach than a carrot, isn't it, from Peter? And rightly so, God should bring judgment to sinners, the wicked and the unrighteous, especially if they're leading others down those paths of sin. And maybe that's a great caution to us as well, to be vigilant in the sources of teaching that we access. You know, there are many famous preachers from mega churches who you should avoid because their teaching strays from the truth. The more intimately you know God's character revealed through His Word, the easier it is to spot them and the easier it is to protect your heart. So heed Peter's warning about false teachers, avoid the danger of deception and protect your heart by knowing God more intimately through His revealed Word. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for each one of us that you would protect our heart. I pray more so, Lord, that we would spend the time knowing the genuine so that we can spot the fake more easy. Lord, give us a great desire to continually be encouraged in your word Give us a great desire to read your word, to immerse ourselves in your scriptures, to know you more intimately and deeply. And Lord, may that protect our heart so that we may avoid the dangers of deception. Lord, I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.